The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. have asked the deepest questions about why we are here, and looked up into the heavens in the hope of an answer. But what if we could travel into those heavens and ask those questions in person? What kind of answers might we receive? My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic, and whole farmer, and you're listening to Cinema Limbo. This evening's symposium has been convened for Star Trek V The Final Frontier, the science fiction adventure based on the television series, and starring and directed by William Shatner. My guest is Chris Arnsby, and you join us on a wintry day after some refreshment. Hello, Chris. Hello. Can you tell me why it is they're putting seatbelts in cinemas this summer? Is it um, to counter the shaking of the camera (laughs) caused by sort of space impact? Well, that was um, one of the promotional uh, taglines. For Star Trek V. Really? Yeah. Uh, that's, the film was going to be so thrilling and so exciting and so action-packed that it was going to feel like you were in a car crash. <laughs> well, that's the, I mean, that's, it just promotes the, the, the opposite impression, doesn't it? The idea that the, the audience have to be restrained or they'll leave. <laughs> um, well, it was released in the summer of 1989, and um, it's not the first time we've covered one of the blockbusters from summer of 89 cinema limit we did uh, License to Kill a while ago and that was the first real blockbuster summer when there were lots of films all competing for audiences eyes and uh, bums on seats and there were flops along the way Mm. because everyone suffered in the fallout of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade and Tim Burton's Batman License to Kill became the lowest grossing Bond film there's ever been not helped by the R rating and Star Trek V became the most hated Star Trek movie, <laughs> apart from maybe two that we've had since then. Well, yes, yeah. So, um, did you see it when it came out? I did. Um, it was an interesting early lesson to me, because I like Star Trek. You know, Star Trek have been on BBC One for years. Until um, the week before they reorganised the schedules yes. in 1985. Yeah, well, that's it. And then Michael Grade... Surprise, who'd have thought it? Michael Grade comes in and there's a science fiction series and he shunts it off to BBC Two because mm. he hates it or something like that. Although, to be fair, at that point it was 20 years old and yeah. maybe it shouldn't have been on in primetime BBC One. But it was in colour. Yeah, <laughs> it was in colour and it was on film. What more could you do? <laughs> um, yeah, and so I went to see it and... I don't know if I was kind of lucky at the time. It was a very early lesson in that kind of cognitive dissonance you get, where you go, I like this, therefore this is good. And then you're confronted by something that's objectively not good. And I had to deal with the fact that I liked Star Trek, and why didn't I really like Star Trek V? And it was it was just an interesting, you know... It's an early lesson in um, critical thinking, in yeah. a way. But... But more in terms of 
um, just not art- artistic criticism. Yes. Why is it that this thing that I think I should like, I don't like? Yeah. What is what is it missing? What does it have too much of? Yeah, and then two months later, I went to see Ghostbusters too. I didn't have a very good track record of selecting films um, in 1989. Ghostbusters two was the other huge smash that summer. Yeah. Um, Ghostbusters two is okay. That's nah, fine. It's, it's not of, as good as the first it's, one. It's kind of the, just the first one again. Yeah. The first one's really, really good. So, and it's got people you like and everything. Um, but yeah, obviously this is. The, I mean, listener, I assume that maybe you aren't wildly familiar with the Star Trek movies, but this is the fifth one. So mm. clearly, this has been going very well. Um, the motion, the first one, the motion picture came out in Christmas '79. Yeah, it was massively expensive, and it did quite well. And for a sequel, they they cut the budget in half, but they brought in a TV producer named Harve Bennett, who was the architect of the, the Star Trek movies as they are popularly popularly remembered, in order to shepherd the project. And the result was Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, mm. which even Arthur C. Clarke thought was one of the greatest science fiction films of all time, and two-thirds of it is shot on the same set. Yes, yeah. I mean, the, and obviously the other thing that, that Harve Bennett did right was he brought in Nicholas Mayer. Yes, who went through seven or eight different versions of the script, pulled out all the bits that he liked, and turned them into one coherent screenplay, and did all of that in less than two weeks, which is incredible. Mm. I mean, it's, it's unimaginable how he could have done that. And he directed the film, and Wrath of Khan is a masterpiece. Yeah. Star Trek Three: Search for Spock is kind of running on the spot. It's just undoing the ending of the previous movie yes. and, and making Spock alive again. Yeah, and it's got Christopher Lloyd in it as a Klingon. Um, I forget that Christopher Lloyd. Yeah, I think one. I think so does Christopher Lloyd to be because honest. he's he's unrecognisable. He, he, doesn't really, he doesn't really do anything apart from having to fulfil the role of. Well, we need to have a physical villain yeah. in the movie. We can't just have the villain be a concept. And it's a slightly baffling piece of guest cast. You, you think, okay, we need a, a relatively a, a big name actor because I know he, he was a big name in TV. He'd been in Taxi and stuff. Yeah, so yeah. He'd been doing, But it's a bit like getting Benedict Cumberbatch to play a Dalek or something. It's you think, okay, let's cast a well-known actor and then slather them in makeup so they're unrecognisable. His voice is very recognisable. Yeah, so it's in true. fairness. Um, but the fact that he was best known as a sitcom actor is. Odd. I mean, trying to think of one of the big, oh, what are the big sitcoms now? What are the good sitcoms now? Oh, what um, a US one? Yes. Yeah, like, well, well, Sanford and Son. Uh, now. Oh, now. Um, I think oh, well, Big Bang Theory, but yes, Big Bang Theory is yes. Well, you, like you, a war crime. You 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 stymied that by saying good. Um, the Good Place. It's too obscure. Okay. <laughs> um, Parks and Recreation. Finished about three years ago. Yeah. Oh, well, let's say damn, Nick, damn I don't know, no, no, I'll tell you what, Nick Offerman. I will give you that Nick Offerman as like a Klingon villain. That would work. Actually, mm. Nick Offerman's worked with Terrence Malick, so clearly he's he's mm. a man with he's a man with with considerable range. But um, Star Trek Three is really just a vehicle for bringing Spock back. Yes, to and then we have Star Trek Four, Thanksgiving, nineteen eighty six, uh, basically revived Star Trek and. The public eye. The previous movies, I mean, two and three had been successful, but they hadn't been hits. Star Trek IV: The Voyage Home was a smash. Yeah. Um, it gave Star Trek comedy. Uh, it's sort of 
very gently sent it up, but didn't compromise the dignity of the characters. It had a pro-ecology message that was becoming more fashionable at the time, and obviously now is accepted truth. Yes, yeah. um, it did everything right, and particularly interesting was Leonard Nimoy, who had directed three and four, uh, as well as playing Spock. He wanted to make a film that didn't have a villain. Yes, that's right. It doesn't, does it? No, it has a, a crisis situation that needs to be overcome, but it doesn't have an actual villainous force, a villainous character, in the way that the previous movies did. Even with that villain, in like the case of the first one, it was a, a sentient mm. space probe that was just misguided. It didn't realise that it was causing damage. Yeah. And the second and third ones, we have malevolent villains. The fourth one, it's just got this big space thing that's trying to communicate with the humpback whales of Earth, and which I, become extinct. I don't, even, I don't think anyone dies, unless you want to assume that somebody dies off-screen in the weather chaos in the 20th no, century. No, there's, there's, um, there's no... Um, it's a film that's very low on violence. Yeah. It's, it's a very... I could almost say it was sanitised, but it really does stay true to the ethos yeah. of Star Trek, no, the very it. optimistic, positive view of the future. Mm. We're going to work things out. We're going to... We're gonna we're gonna figure all these problems out, and we're gonna be a success, and we're yeah. gonna go off into space and meet people, and it's gonna be great. And the movie was a huge hit, and I think it was. I don't know if Star Trek: The Next Generation was already in preparation. Uh, I think Star Trek: The Next Generation was. I think I it, think it might have been eighty seven. So it was a year later, but I yeah. don't. But I think that it was the time scale is maybe too short for. Oh, this movie's been a success. Let's do a TV oh, show. Oh yeah, no, it was the, the, those two things was, weren't related. But, oh right, but, but the next generation, I think, was definitely ticking away in the background. Right. Yeah. I think. Well, the success of Voyage Home definitely would mm. have helped. It would have certainly given the Star Trek brand yeah. um, increased value. So after that, where do you go from the biggest hits that Star Trek has ever had? Well, that's the question, isn't it? Yes. When William Shatner signed up to do. Star Trek Four and play Kirk once again. He had part of his contract included so that he and Leonard Nimoy would be treated similarly. And given that Nimoy had directed two films on the run and done rather well, he's not a particularly flamboyant or showy director, but he has a, a definite skill. Shatner wanted to direct. He'd worked in television, mm. apparently he'd done some theatre as well. He was very good with working with actors but he wanted to do a Star Trek movie. So it was decided that Star Trek V would be unfilmed to William Shatner. Yes. And, and he came up with a story concept, which is the Enterprise meets God. Yeah. Or a being that appears to be God. And it all goes wrong immediately, doesn't it? Because that's... It, it was half Bennett, apparently, William Shatner pitched the idea to him and William Shatner, uh, sorry, and Half Bennett pointed out that if you sat down and looked in the TV guide and saw tonight the Enterprise goes to the centre of the universe and meets God, you go, I bet they don't. So <laughs> the premise undermines itself immediately because you know that Captain Kirk is not going to meet God. And it's just flawed immediately, straight up, you know, before you've written anything, before a, a section of film has been. Regardless of. The potential of the idea. Yeah. It sounds goofy. But yes, there is that as well. There have been a lot of jokes over the years about how this is the film where William Shatner meets God and it's him, or William Shatner meets God and has a fist fight and wins, because William Shatner's ego is well known. Yes, yeah, oh yes. 
the basic idea does sound like something that you would have seen in the original TV show. It that is. Kind of, that kind of big spiritual concept. Well, there's an episode called The Way to Eden where a bunch of space hippies turn up and because they're convinced they found Eden and they go off and find it and in an ironic twist, Eden isn't very nice. So it kind of has been... It's, know, it, it's not wildly original. No. But I think it's a good enough starting point. You need to, I mean... Yeah. You need to have more than that. As you say, if you see in like the listings of oh, the Enterprise meets God, I think... Uh, but if you can't something else, the Enterprise searches, I mean, searches for the meaning of life or just comes up with something yeah. as a variation or uses the, the, that as a starting point for pondering bigger questions yes, yeah. and finding a way to make it exciting and dramatic and interesting on screen, there's definitely space for that. Yes. Certainly, I mean, as a contrast with the previous movie, which was a, more of a fish-out-of-water comedy with an ecological message and this is more of a spiritual story I about, suppose... about the meaning the, the meaning of, of life in, in, in mm. realistic terms to, to be fair if you somebody came in and pitched you oh the Enterprise is going back in time to save the whales that you, sounds awful yeah it, it sounds just as bad as the Enterprise meets God so there is something about that. You, if you boil something down to a, the most basic concept yes it sounds diabolical mm. however then everything else happened. Yeah. Um, to begin with, there was a writer's strike. So the script that they wound up using was maybe not as polished as it could have been. Mm. There were other issues involving trade unions. The Teamsters apparently weren't being wildly cooperative. Um, Kel Surprise. Yes. Um, this is obviously going to be the last scene of my Lemur episode because they're going to find me buried up to my neck in concrete. You're next to Jimmy Hoffman, yes. <laughs> um, and um, there were budgetary issues as well. This mm. was the most expensive Star Trek film since the motion picture, which had been a giant mega-budget production, Yeah, um, which had horrified the studio at the time. Actually, Harve Bennett famously was in his, in his meeting where he was pitching to take over running the Star Trek movies, and he was kind of had in his various ideas. One of the producers said, well, the last movie cost $55 million dollars. Can you make your movie for less than fifty-five million fucking dollars? <laughs> <laughs> and Bennett replied, "Well, where I come from, we can make five movies for that." Um, but this was this was a relatively expensive yeah. movie, and yet it looks cheap. Part of the problem, and I can't remember why I read this now, but what happened with the Star Trek movies was increasing. What do they refer to it as above the line costs? Yes, the actors' salaries. That the, was... act, the actors and the sort of the main creative yeah. force, the producers and the writers as well. Because immediately, in order to assemble the central team, you've got yeah. six, seven actors. It's a se- well, the the main, the core enterprise yeah. cast is is seven. Yeah, and if they're all commanding million, um, you know, if if. James Doohan is commanding a million dollars. Well, that's you know you can guarantee that Shatner and Nimoy will be on more than that. So I think that was part yes. of the problem was that, that literally the above the line costs were just starting to pile up. And it's noticeable also that they're reusing sets from the Next Generation. Yes, and music as well. I think a lot of the music is because it opens with the sort of the fanfare from Star Trek the Motion Picture, doesn't it? Yes, but that's a new recording. Ah, okay, yeah, I didn't realise that. Um, this was actually the first time that the the theme from the motion picture had been reused since then, even though it had been co-opted as the theme for the next generation. So mm. there must have been a slight 
jarring um, yes. for, the, for the audience because uh, James Horner had written the music for Rough of Khan and Search of Spock and he'd come up with a new kind of naval theme. Hmm. And then Roseman wrote the music for Voyage Home, which is nominated for an Oscar, okay. which has its own original theme. So now this goes back to the original one. So it, it's, it's reusing ideas as well. Hmm. There is some very beautiful music in the film. Oh, yeah. The, yeah. Um, the, uh, the opening titles, once we get past the, sort of the main credits and then we move into the, um, the sequence where Kirk, McCoy and uh, Spock are on holiday camping together which if you think of if you, I mean it's you think well yeah they would because they're like a they're like a human mm. they're, the, they're closer than the closest friends yeah but if you go yeah they're on holiday together it does sound ridiculous but the music that's playing over that opening sequence it's it's really beautiful it's really sort of calm and peaceful and it's just in this this wonderful natural surrounding of Yosemite National Park where I've been listener have you? I've, okay. been, to, I've been to everywhere oh nice one um, yeah, there's all sorts of big trees there, <laughs> um, and it's it's a very just very beautiful, very unspoilt hmm. surrounding. So you have this very calm, evocative, beautiful music as a stuntman climbs a rock face. Yes, it's like watching T.J. Hooker all over again, isn't it? <laughs> Where the the, the the you know T.J. Hooker would shout, "Quick, the criminal's getting away!" and the camera angle would change slightly and suddenly TJ Hooker's body shape would change and he appeared to be wearing a slightly ill-fitting wig. <laughs> As opposed to the really well-fitting wig well, the rest of the time. Um, but that's not the side of the movie. It's the sphere, there's a pre-credits oh, that's right. There is, isn't there? On uh, Nimbus 3, The Planet of Galactic Peace. I quite like the opening because there's something about... It's very, very odd and in a way it's very, very pointless. I'm trying to think of what what is the film, what what's the play about the two characters Rosencrantz and Guildenstein are dead is the one I'm thinking of I think is that the one where famously nothing ever happens or something like that how do you mean Rosencrantz and Guildenstein isn't that famously a play where sort of nothing much happens no that's waiting for God oh okay I'm, I am getting confusing Rosencrantz and Guildenstein are dead is the one about the two minor characters in Hamlet that's it well, there's just something about the opening sequence where it's a guy on a horrible bleak planet who's apparently just digging holes because he's got nothing else to do. And one of them has got a line about, would you murder me for a field of holes? And the guy says, that's all I've got. And there is something vaguely, weirdly pointless about these people. This is this guy's existence. He's on a horrible planet digging holes, because what else is he going to do? I assume that he was uh, trying to dig a well of some sort, but it's it's never stated exactly no. what he's trying to do. But then this figure comes out of the... The, the mist, the dust, the heat, riding haze. a horse. Yes, it's all very Lawrence of Arabia, isn't it? It is very... I actually wrote down Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> um, I like, um, like Omar Sharif approaching mm. um, Lawrence at the well. And um, he uh, he asks this uh, snaggletoothed, bald, uh, peculioid to share his pain with him. And a weight seems to be lifted yes. from him suddenly. And so he... You, you come and come and join me. Join my quest. So, well, who are you? So, well, I can't remember what the dialogue is anymore. Yeah. But the point is that he he lifts back his hood and reveals that he is in fact a Vulcan. But he is so much more emotional and passionate mm. than a Vulcan could be. So there we have the intrigue. There we have the twist. Who is this character? What's his quest? What? Why what is the, Why is Nimbus Three the planet of galactic peace? Whether it's you know it's got more holes than Blackburn Lancashire. Hmm. 
and we will find this out later on. Yes, in theory. What did you think? Uh, no, actually, I'll hold off on that okay. for a bit. Um, meanwhile, on Earth, the crew of the Enterprise are on shore leave. Um, the new Enterprise that was introduced at the end of the previous movie is being fit, uh, fitted out. Yes. And like that. So everyone's basically hanging around on Earth, waiting for the work to be finished. While Scotty is busy, apparently doing everything, just on his fixing own. everything. He's, yes, yeah, because it's because they can't afford to to pay any extras. I suspect. I can't help feeling. Well, where did all the money go? It went on horses. The cast. I think it. I think it went on the cast. Yeah, think, yeah. I, uh, and and you do have we do have quite a uh, a decent supporting cast in mm, this movie. Yeah. David Warner turns up and does nothing. No, he's just he's he's in the background, isn't he? And it's I mean, was this before David Warner became famous? <laughs> I mean, he'd been in Tron. Yeah, you think it's it's a it's a it's this a peculiar. Was, this was maybe a slack point in his career. Yeah, maybe. But the funny thing is that two years later, two and a half years later, he was in Star Trek Six, mm. and he has a major pivotal yeah. role in that. He's the He's the Klingon Abraham Lincoln, who's yeah. who wants or more like the Klingon Gorbachev, mm. who's pursuing peaceful overtures with the Federation. Yeah, and is the linchpin of the whole movie. But here, he's he's just a bloke. He's just like the the smarmy, weirdly sweaty looking Federation representative on Nimbus Three, who doesn't do anything for the entire movie. No, he gets about half a dozen lines, doesn't he? Yeah. He's just kind of he's he's just there. A lot of the time. Maybe he and Shatner were pals. Yeah, possibly, quite possibly. Um, but yes, you know, it is, uh, and the the crew of the Enterprise are on holiday in Yosemite National Park, and they're William Shatner's going rock climbing, or at least pretending to go rock climbing. Mm. I, I, you know, I watched that opening sequence, and I, ca- I, I remember thinking that they were going to kill Kirk off in this film, because. It kind of, I think there was, even in the far-off days of 1989, there was a feeling that they couldn't keep making Star Trek films forever. And do you just let the series stop, or do you maybe finish it on a big event, like, say, Kirk's funeral? And when he has that whole speech a little bit into the film where he says that he knew he wasn't going to die because because he wasn't alone, that was immediately what I thought was, OK, this is the film where they're going to kill Captain Kirk. It is the logical endpoint of the story. Mm. Well, and of course, uh, and ultimately, that's ironically, that's what what happens in generations. Of course, is that in the end, yes, they do end up killing off Kirk, just in a way that's possibly even more anticlimactic. Than... But more pointedly, he doesn't have his friends with him. No, I suppose that's true. He doesn't. At least it fits thematically, I guess. Yeah. In the end, unfortunately, generations is also crap. Yes. Oh yeah, yeah. It's one <laughs> it's, of the terrible next generation. It's, it's one. Films, of, it's one of the several terrible next generation films because after Star Trek Six, the Undiscovered Country, there aren't many more good Star Trek movies. I think there have been two since then. I think at least the, the the relief when Generations came out was was all the Star Trek fans realizing that the odd number bad, even number good pattern still held <laughs> true. Because then, of course, the um, first Contact came out. And it's like, oh, even number good. It's still the system still works. And then I think it was the ones after that that thoroughly scuffed up the line. Well, then um, well, those were ninety four and ninety mm. four and ninety six, and then Star Trek Insurrection was ninety eight, and that's rubbish. That's yeah. the one with the Phantom of Youth. Again, oh, it's the big spiritual that's quest. The quilt making aliens, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. 
um, and uh, the villain's F. Murray Abraham under a pile of prosthetics, and it's rubbish. Yes. And then in 2002, Star Trek flushed itself down the toilet with Nemesis. With Nemesis, that was it. Which absolutely bombed and is terrible. Mm. And um, that was the last Star Trek movie for seven years. Yeah. Until J.J. Abrams came along. It's kind of odd as well, because sort of within my head, I always associate the, the, the next generation films as being last millennium. And it's kind. It's a little bit strange to realise that they did just struggle into the twenty first century. Mm. I mean, Nemesis came out uh, during, I think, the second season of Enterprise. Yeah, yeah, it would be something like so that. So it was while Star Trek was really on its last legs, because Enterprise is the only series since the original series to get cancelled. Yes, yeah, it got cancelled at the end of the th- fourth fourth series. That was it. Yeah. All the other, I mean, apart from. <laughs> The original series, all the others ran for a full seven seasons, mm. apart from the animated series, but no one really counts. That. <laughs> nice. I like the episode of the animated series where there is a giant clone of Spock who's like fifty feet tall. I think for we, no reason. Weirdly, despite having seen pretty much everything, I haven't seen any of the animated series. It's on Netflix. Is it? Oh, I might have to. The entire run of Star Trek on TV is on Netflix. Oh, I might have to go back and watch it now. Although I'm. I'm going into it with the expectations thoroughly lowered because yes I'm aware it's not very fondly regarded it also helps that the episodes are only 25 minutes yeah yeah that, that, that does make a difference the rock climbing sequence does set up a few things there is um, particularly that William Shatner wanted the uh, the sequence to symbolise man reaching out reaching up reaching for greater things Okay. I think there's also a certain amount of ego in saying, yes, hey, yeah. look at how virile I am yes. as my stuntman does this. <laughs> um, but also it sets up Spock's rocket boots for a, a set piece yeah. later in the movie, even though it doesn't really make a lot of sense. And it's... Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a cheap gag, but it's kind of funny when Spock suddenly comes into, comes into frame when Kirk's halfway up a mountain. Mm. It's all just a bit... I think even at this early stage it all just feels a bit inconsequential there's no do you have the whole sequence where Kirk falls off the mountain and it you oh. never really feel there's any danger or any peril there but I suppose partly that's just because it's placed right at the start of a film I mean what are they going to do they're going to kill Kirk and Spock in the opening for although to be fair Star Trek 2 kills off Spock I within was, the opening I'm 10 minutes I have to say that because there have been so many rumours and stories that Star Trek 2 was going to kill off Spock yeah. and they contracted that by killing him off in the first 10 minutes as part of a simulation and mm. he's actually fine and then they actually kill him off for real at the end yes, of the movie yeah. I don't know why Spock has gone on holiday wearing rocket boots <sighs> he's just doing them to ponce around yeah he's probably just making a nuisance of himself whilst um, McCoy is watching is spending his day watching Kirk through binoculars and stressing while yeah. while stressing and talking to himself and wearing his double denim, denim outfit. Um, but they're recalled. Everyone is recalled back to the Enterprise because there's a situation on Number Three um, because it was supposed to be this planet where uh, the three empires, the Federation, the Klingons, and the, um, the Romulans can all can all work together. But it's just a desert hole in the ground because clearly there were some politicians who just wouldn't back down on their terrible idea. I don't think it's a specific... I can't think of anything comparable within the Cold War where the sort of Soviet Union and the Americans worked together apart from some of the joint Apollo-Soyuz missions. I don't think, don't think that counts. But I can't think of anything... I don't, I don't think it's meant to be a sort of a metaphor for something in the real world. Um, 
so it seems like a slightly odd scheme particularly with the Klingons who at this point weren't weren't the sort of the noble warriors that they'd become in Star Trek The Next Generation. I struggle to see why they'd get involved in something like this. But it's, well, it's the, it's, it sets if, the film up. If we're going to talk about things in the movie that don't hold water... Well, yeah, this is true. Um, so um, even though the Enterprise is effectively a big bag of bits... Um, it's and doesn't and nothing works. And nothing works. Like Even the captain's chair is squeaking... The captain's log, when he tries to record something, starts exploding in his face. And the transporters don't work, which is a pretty big problem. That's definitely a worry. Um, the captain's log, it's a cute gag. It, again, it, it's just it, a gag. It it's just a it doesn't have any relevance to no. anything. The lift doors don't open properly. Yes, again, which is just a... Yeah. I think that's quite... You, know, you don't want to get trapped in there. No. You don't want to get you don't want to get um, one of those doors closing in your face unexpectedly. There's enough outtakes of that happening to the actors in the original series to realise it's not fun. Um, but because there are no experienced commanders for some reason, the Enterprise is dispatched in Embers Three to mount some kind of commando raid and um, free the three hostages who have been taken prisoner by mm. this mysterious Vulcan, whom Spock when he sees the Hostage tape appears to have some kind of. Uh, Why it's almost an emotional reaction. I know, like this part of his face moves. The, and I'm, I'm aware. Oh no, I'm about to give away the big reveal of the film that <gasps> Cyborg is actually Spock's brother. Would it have made more sense if the reason they wanted the Enterprise was because the hostages have been taken by Spock's brother, instead of having the whole thing about oh we need an experienced captain or something. Does it just hold a little bit more water if they go, the guy that's behind this is Spock's brother, therefore you ha- don't, we don't care what state the ship's in, you have to go and deal with this. It would have made more sense, I think, if because they say, right, well, we need, we need an experienced crew, and you're an experienced crew, okay, but we can't send the Enterprise because it's falling to bits. Yes. Take charge, we need you to take charge of the Excelsior. Says, nah, no, but... This, I'm the captain of the Enterprise. The, the Enterprise is my ship, regardless of what state mm. it's in. This is my ship, this is my crew. And it might then have fed back in again to the movie's vague themes about family. Yeah, if you include yeah. the Enterprise as a member of the family. I don't know, it just... But then again, if you do that, look at all the hilarious jokes you lose about faulty equipment. And, and Scotty not... walking into things. Yeah. So you can see why they went with the... Oh, we just need you to go because otherwise this film ends after twenty-five minutes. Yeah, the admiral who sends them on their way is actually played by Harv <laughs> Bennett. Yes, yeah. As he waves goodbye to his career, um, Star Trek V's failure would basically end his career. I think so. I think he he he'd pitched an idea for Star Trek Academy, um, which wound up basically being the JC, the JJ Abrams story it? Yes, of, yeah. of the origin of the career of the Enterprise. And everybody kind of hated Star Trek Academy, so yeah, they went off and made Star Trek Six instead. But which is really good. I know, yeah, <laughs> I, I think I think his point was always because he was looking at it from a bit more of a financial. So, you know, you look and you go, well, these guys aren't getting any younger, and they're also not getting any cheaper. Mm. If we start again with a new cast of unknown, let's make another six Star Trek films, and then when they get too expensive, we'll think of something else. Yeah. Um, I can see where he was coming from, but yeah, I think at the time I thought it sounded like a stupid idea. Um, yeah, I didn't like it. I mean, when they eventually did it, I wasn't impressed, particularly by the J.J. J. Abrams film. 
it had it it was lacking the the chemistry and the closeness, I think, that the characters and particularly mm. the actors had. Because all the previous Star Trek movies had all grown out of the TV shows. So these were people who had worked with each other for years. They knew each other's rhythms. They knew how to work together. They knew how to get the chemistry right between the characters. When they were all recast for, that, for the J.J. Abrams reboot, everyone was starting from scratch. Mm. So there was no meshing, for example, between... Chris Pine and Zachary Quinto as, as Kirk and Spock. It didn't, yeah. it didn't seem to work. And it took them two movies and a different director to actually get it to work because the third one they did, Star Trek Beyond, I think is a great Star Trek movie. I was really impressed. Yeah, I really was surprised, surprised when I saw it. Because yeah. you know, from the director of the Fast and the Furious sequels, <laughs> yeah. I was expecting it to be awful. But it actually worked really well as a Star Trek story. Yeah, I mean, the other problem with the... J.J. Abrahams is a bit, you know, it's the it's a fresh start, it's a new universe, it's a new timeline. Oh, and here's old Spock, and of course, that culminates in the sequence, is it, Into Darkness, where they basically phone old Spock up and ask him to explain Who's the plot. Who's this calm guy then? Yeah, yeah, they wanted it to be new and fresh, but not too new and fresh because you don't want to alienate people. What did you think of Lawrence Luckenbill as Cybot? It's an engaging enough performance. It's not the world's worst piece of acting. I can see the kvitts piling up in your I'm, eyes. I'm not trying to... I, I'm not trying... It's, it's genuinely... It's one of those cases you look in and go, it's fine. But it's basically, after the lead cast, it's the lead baddie. In a film that's got David Warner standing in the corner. Yeah. And, <laughs> well, he has to stand there because it rhymes. Yeah, that's true. Um, I don't know why they cast him. If I'm being... He's, he's, he's fine, but... What do you think should be the key elements for the character to get to, to really get that to work then? In he needs to be insanely charismatic right. because he is basically playing a cult. Of, you know, he's playing a religious cult leader. Um, I don't know who was around at the time that you could have cast as an alternative, but... Well, Shatner had someone in mind. Oh, really? Oh, yes. Was he not William? Because I was... He's such a left-field choice that I just assumed that somebody must have seen him on TV and gone, no, that's the guy. I didn't... So he was the second choice, then? Yes. Okay. Who was first? Sean Connery. He'd never have done it, would he? Well, he was probably very busy doing Star, uh, um, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. We've already just talked about how horrendous the above-the-line costs are on this film, and now you want to get Sean Connery in as well. I can't imagine Sean Connery would have been overly keen on doing a Star Trek movie. It would have been one of his real grudging performances. Yeah. Lawrence Luckenbill was a stage actor, and Shatner has seen his stage work and had yeah. found him to have the the charisma and the um, magnetism that he believed that a character like Cybok needed. Yeah, and, and uh, I, I feel... I don't... I know I'm being terribly lukewarm about him, but he is... He's fine. There's nothing wrong with his performance. I'm just slightly baffled that in, in any other film, that's the starring role. And it's kind of not hard not to look at and go, him? But... I think it's a good performance. Yeah, I yeah. think it's... I think the, the issue is that there is a lack of focus, that it's never truly clear what Cybok's motives no. are, what, <clears throat> he, what, is, what, what, what his plan appears to be. Or what, um, his whole, what, what his powers are, or what his hold is over his followers. It's all 
it's very vague and unfocused. And yeah. I think a major issue there is the the writer's strike, which stopped mm. them from fully developing a a finished workable draft of the movie. Yeah, yeah. What exactly does Cyborg want when he comes face to face with the creator, for example? Yeah. You never read. Really, I mean, maybe it's just to meet him. Possibly. Maybe that's enough to to know that he he all he believed was right. But mm. the idea, I mean, his his plan is rather garbled and, and yeah. confusing. Why does he need a Federation starship? Why does he go to Nimbus 3 and, and start a hostage situation well, to try and attract a starship? What if the Klingons turn up and just decide well, to turn the place into atoms? That's exactly... Why the, not hire a ship? What... Yes, that would be the simple. Uh, any... if, if he could pool all this this great crowd of followers, he could say, "Well, everyone, give me one space dollar, mm. and then we can afford a ship, and and some of us can go to the center of the galaxy and meet Jesus." Yeah, and then, he, and when you say it like that, it sounds stupid. And then... <laughs> well, actually, when I say, I think, think actually, that's, that's that's basically Kickstarter. Yeah, but you know, it is that thing that yes, and, and obviously the captain of the spaceship would go, "Well, I can't take you through the the great energy barrier." But well, then well, all he needs to do okay. is he you, heals you, the captain's pain, and then the captain becomes a follower. Yeah, yeah. So, well, you know, if you don't want to go, then you just hop in the escape pod, and we've got you know people following mm. us, and they'll pick you up, and you'll be fine. The film is driven too much, or always is is desperate to reach that moment where Spock meets this brother that he hasn't talked about for years, and and then the follow up moment where Kirk goes, "No, you don't have a brother." And everything, all the kind of the logic that leads up to that is just kind of, it's not exactly discarded, but as you say, you get the impression that nobody's quite sat down and gone, well, A leads to B and B leads to C, because it's still, I still come back to the same point. Cyborg's actions make a lot more sense if he's expecting the Federation to send Spock, because otherwise he's just kidnapped a Romulan and a Klingon ambassador, and yeah, if the Klingons get there first... They've had it. They're in a lot they'll of be, trouble. They'll make, if, if he's lucky... The Klingon ambassador will get beamed out. Yeah, and everyone else is is yes, photon torpedoed. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. All the Romulans turn up, and well, who knows what happens at that point? Yeah, I mean, I can't even remember what they're supposed to look like. Well, they, they, they all have bowl cuts, or is that just everybody in space? The Romulans in the in the original series, the Romulans, because that's obviously the big gag is that the Romulans look like the Vulcans. Uh, in fact, that's. This is my nerdy trivia point that I noticed while I was watching the film. There's a very, very clever piece of money saving on the Romulan ambassador in that she's got like metal ear covers, so they don't need to make her ears point. So they must have saved all of three or four thousand dollars by not giving that actress pointy ears. Um, Saving money on effects appears to have been the watchword of the movie. Yeah, it was was the prime concern, wasn't it? Um, We'll come back to that because that is a. But yeah, major problem. Yeah. In the original series, they look like the Vulcans. In the Next Generation, they've all got kind of um, very square haircuts, and they're all sort of shoulder padded up because it was the eighties. Oh yeah, um, so look important. Yes, but yeah, basically Vul- Vulcans with attitude. Well, they arrive on the planet, and obviously the best people to lead uh, an assault squad are three men in their fifties mm. wearing their regulation SAS jumpers. That's pretty much how they took down uh, Osama bin Laden. Yeah. I mean, it seems entirely reasonable. Um, but the whole thing turns out to be... Uh, I mean, Uhura does have fan dance to um, 
lure some types away from uh, their horses. There's a lot of, lot of horses in the movie. Yes. Because William, Sh- William Shatner's a big horse guy. Horses. He wanted the horses to be unicorns. What? <laughs> 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 oh. Not actual unicorns. No, that would be stupid, wouldn't that, it? That would be crazy. Uh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, I think it's beginning to. I'm beginning to be amazed that Star Trek Five came out as well as it. <laughs> oh, don't forget that uh, Cybox horse is also blue. Uh, well, that's space. space. It's I a mean, space horse. It's like in the. It was like in the '60s Star Trek when everyone ate. Celery that have been dyed blue because it looked more futuristic. Um, but I don't know how to read her was fan dance because, on the one hand, she's an attractive looking woman, you know, there's nothing, but it's a bit like I think I remember a reviewer at the time saying it was a bit like watching your aunt get drunk and embarrass herself at a party. It mm. just seems inappropriate. But I, but then again, the problem you've got with the Star Trek, in addition to the fact that the cast were increasingly demanding more and more money they all wanted little bits to do yeah. so we've sadly we've glossed over George Takai and um, I nearly called Walter him John Koenig Walter Koenig <laughs> I'm mixing with space franchises now yes so their secret their hilarious sequence where they're lost in the forest and have to pretend that there's a blizzard blowing that's their bit to keep them happy yeah. as actors Uhura gets to do a bit of a dance and sing a bit of a song that's her bit to keep her happy um, Chekhov also has the bit where he's pretending to be captain of the Enterprise. Oh, that's of course. Yes, he does, doesn't he? And don't forget the long-awaited Uhura Scotty romance. Yeah, that's the yes. And this is the but this, and this is the problem you've got with the film is increasingly it's not just about making sure that it's keeping the cast happy, giving them something to do because George Takai's nose have been put out of joint. In one of the earlier Star Trek films, I think, wasn't there one film where they were going to film a sequence where he, where Sulu was promoted to captain, and William Shatner kept acting up? I don't know if it was Wrath of Khan. I don't know. There's definitely, it's definitely something. That's, uh, there was definitely a point when George Takai has complained subsequently that this was Sulu's. This was a little scene for Sulu. Mm. William Shatner started acting up, and it didn't get filmed. And I can't remember the precise details. I'm just left slightly nonplussed by the Yohova sequence. I'm, I'm not. The, sorry, the, da- the, the dance, dance sequence. Not, we're still, we're still the dance. Oh yeah, not the, the uh, not the, the Scotty, Scotty the Scotty romance. Well, it comes out of nowhere. It com- my exact words: it comes out of nowhere. It has no impact on anything, and there's no actual chemistry between them. Way, <laughs> and it's uh, forgotten at the end. I think as well. Yeah, isn't? at the at the cocktail party that they have at the end of the movie. Mm. Did they just leave the camera running during the rap party? Possibly. That might have explained. And then everyone had to, Yeah, everyone just came in their costume everyone because it was cheaper. shit-faced on Romula now. And, um... Jumping ahead, obviously, but, um... David Warner and the Romulan representative are, are hooking up. Yes, yeah, they go. And I wonder if that's scripted or whether that's just uh, an actor going, I'm so bored, let's just do something. Well, David Warner... A reputation as quite the charmer. Yes. <laughs> I'll leave it there. Yeah. But um, he's, he's apparently quite the uh, the Cary Grant on the sly. Oh, well, yeah. Good, good luck to him. But the fact that everyone seems to be getting on really well and everyone's mm. very chatty with the Klingons, thought, is this where like the sixth film's going, where the Klingons are trying to sue for peace? Is this, is this where the seeds of that come from? Quite possibly, yeah. 
General Krug having, or whatever his name is, having a, a bit of um, scotch from uh, Scotty's flask. So uh, it turns out that um, God actually brought everyone together after all. Yes, well, he's right here in the human heart. Yeah, that's why I've got heartburn. <laughs> yes, that's just nausea. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the devil sitting in my mm. capillaries. That's cholesterol. <laughs> I knew I shouldn't have eaten that whale at the end of the previous movie. Mm. Ah, now, important side note. Um, again, from a previous podcast on uh, Phase 4, I mentioned at one point that the writer of Phase 4, Mayo Simon, no, not not, not, okay, not, yeah. not him, um, had two famous daughters, or two daughters who had achieved great success, and then I forgot to say what they'd done. Ah. Um, one of them was the science consultant to the entire run of The X-Files, Okay. And the other wrote the Horrid Henry books. Right. <laughs> because this movie, too, has a major participant with famous relatives. Who's that, then? Lawrence Luckenbill. Okay. His nieces are the Wachowski sisters. Oh, okay. Really? Yeah. I mean, so yeah. Why, why is he not in any of the Matrix movies? you think they would have asked him. <laughs> I did go back and look at his IMDb profile, and he hasn't... I think he's a very successful stage actor. I think... It's very easy to look at his IMDb profile and sneer at it and go, "Well, you did." You know, I noticed Star Trek Five was the last film he did. I wonder why that was. But there is always a tendency to assume that if people aren't on film or on TV, they're not working. And yeah, as you said earlier, I, th- I think he he had the career he wanted. Mm. He was a stage actor, and he, you know, yes, it's nice to suddenly get a massive amount of money for being in a film or something. But I'm sure he would have jumped at the chance. You know, big, you know, a big yeah. star part in a in a big movie that'll do nicely. Hmm. Um, so Cyborg takes control of the ship with his four or five followers who've managed to squeeze into the shuttlecraft with everyone else while they fly back to the Enterprise yes then that's another vaguely tension free se- sequence isn't it where they sort of deliberately crash land that's well, quite, a, quite an expensive looking set to be yes, fair yes because it takes too, the, the, the Klingon ship is closing in hmm. and it takes too long to lower the shields and bring the Shuttlecraft into the tractor beam, so they just fly it straight in yes. and and hope that they don't smash into everything. You realise we've done a terrible disservice to one of the key actors in this film. We've skipped entirely over the sequence with the sexy space cat lady. Oh yeah, because it's a script by William Shatner. So let's throw in a sexy space cat lady. Well, who drown? I think does he drown her? I thought he just throws her in the water. But well, face, in, the, in the pool table, don't forget. Face down, and then nobody goes to check she's okay. I'm just a little bit worried about the space cat lady. She presumably climbs out. Always, I hope always so. busy trying to lick herself clean. I'm going to assume that Dr McCoy went over and made sure she was okay off camera. Well, one thing about that sequence I like is that um, Cybok is very adamant about avoiding violence. Mm. Yes, and it's interesting because you can't help wondering if you were making a film like that these days about a bunch of religious fanatics, you perhaps wouldn't be quite so charitable. But then again, you're back to the same thing. It's a Star Trek film, a bit like Star Trek Four. They're trying to avoid having anybody that's obviously... I'm, ju- I'm just the villain, you know. Yeah, they don't want it... Th- you know, the goodies and baddies mm. is too easy. This is... Cyborg is a... He sees himself as a spiritual leader, a man of peace, a man mm. who wants to help people and heal people. Yeah. 
And yes, he's doing it through lying and subterfuge, but he's doing it for the greater good. And ultimately, yeah. he doesn't want anyone to be hurt. That's the whole point. No, that's right. He says, you know, what, you know, the sacrifice of one life is, is too great. And it's his followers and the, uh, the team from the Enterprise who start having a firefight. And he's desperately saying, no, stop, mm. stop. This isn't what I want. But again, it raises, it raises the question, it just raises the suspicion that none of, nobody's motivations have been thought through properly. Or he, It's a nice sequence where he's announcing that this isn't what he wants, but what did he expect? He's just taken three, you're back yeah. to saying, what did he expect if the Klingons got there first? You know, it's lucky that um, the transporters weren't working, because well. then they could have just transported the three ambassadors away, mm. and that would have been fine. Almost as though the script wasn't finished. Yeah, and that's maybe that's the worst thing. Maybe that's the worst thing about the film is it just, it just runs as a series of like damage control exercises where somebody goes, oh hang on, can't they just beam them out? Okay, fine, the transporters aren't working, or well, can't they do this? Well, okay, fine, then you know, and it's just, it's just this sense that the script hasn't so much been written as as just Frankenstein together. Yeah. That's the and it's the irony because that's exactly what Wrath of Khan was. I suppose Wrath so. of Khan was like five or six completely different mm. story ideas, just all thrown together in a blender. And Nicholas May just picked up all the bits that he liked and that other people liked and that worked, and he just kind of smooshed it all together into a, yeah. a good story. And I suppose that's well, obviously, it's the importance of having a really good writer director on yeah. the day, but also it's the luxury of time um, and. Yeah, I, I suspect if if money was short, one of the things that like you don't have the money to pay people to take their time to do stuff like that. Mm. I think because there were there were certain restrictions on making Wrath of Khan, like they were working with much less money, mm. but they'd figured out how to set, spend it sensibly by shooting most yeah. of the movie on one set that could stand there for multiple locations. Here you've got location shooting, you've got you've got model effects, you've got Proto digital effects. You've got night. You've got all. You've got, you've got scenes night. With, you've got night shoots. Scenes with loads of extra. You know the whole sequence where they're trying to take Paradise City. There's so many extras and horses again. Yeah. Um, and it's just there's just so much money straight away. There's there's, just, there's, there's it's not being spent wisely. No. And going look, we've spent four. We've we've saved four thousand dollars by not giving the Romulan ambassador pointy ears. It's like. There's all these horses outside. <laughs> yeah, no, it, there, there is that sense, isn't there? It's, this is a film. This is a film by a first-time director, and I don't know. It's you think of something like the Search for Spock, well, which but, I think is all studio-based, isn't it? Well, yes, but also you have the benefit that Leonard Nimoy is not a major actor in that movie. Yeah, yeah. He only appears in it right at the end. So he's able to entirely focus on the directing. Mm. William Shatner is top build and the lead, as well as being the director and co-writing the story, although that's that's, that's done by the time you get to the shooting stage. So he's got all these things he's got to do at once, and he is not a good visual... Well, there are scenes in the movie that work. They're not action scenes. They're dialogue Mm. scenes and they're character scenes. The scene in the observation deck that we get to later on has been singled out, I think, repeatedly as one of the best acted scenes in any of the Star Trek movies. Yeah, yeah. Because it's all about character. It's all about inner turmoil. 
and it's directed in a way that is very theatrical, mm. but in context works very well. And um, where you have characters having visions of their past traumas, and it's you know you have to, a light fades up and you see this tableau behind them that they then interact with. And you think, well, the alternative would be doing some digital effect or yeah, or some, some or... visual composite or something. And I think, well, that looks kind of cheap and cheesy, but this way, it's no, it's physically there suddenly, yeah. and it's kind of old-fashioned, but it works mm. because the actors are really committing to it because it's an emotional situation. Yeah, yeah, and as you say, it's a bunch of actors who've known each other for a long time, so they can all interact with it. Yes, um, you have that chemistry. You have that. Everyone knows each yeah. other's levels, and it's it's a very odd. And if I'm being I'm not entirely sure I like it, but I think I'm not. I don't think I like it because I worry too much. It breaks the realism of the Star Trek universe because suddenly you're having visions that that are not only visions but visions that other people can see. Um, it depends entirely on what Cybox powers are supposed to be. Well, yeah, that's it, which is a, which is a movable feast in itself. But in terms of that, the fact that it's a group of actors use one very talent, one very confident stage actor. A group of people that have worked with each other for years that's obviously enough to stop anyone worrying this seems a bit weird we've never done it you know they just get on with it and they get on with it very well everyone's committing to it Mm. totally and making it as real as they can emotionally and that just carries it everything everything else is just noise I mean once they go back on the Enterprise they get imprisoned and then they escape and then then they get get into this whole situation Um, I did like that that there is a toilet in the brig, in which, oh, in which right, all yes. three of them have been imprisoned, and the, there is a theme through the movie of the central trio of Kirk, Spock, and McCoy as being a family, mm. and I I like the way that that is kind of the key to the whole story, but it's not handled terribly well because why are they all in the same cell? <laughs> Again, because. Because the film doesn't. Because the film demands it for yeah. plot reasons. Yeah, exactly. Really. There is one very nice, completely throwaway gag in that scene when they're in the brig, which is uh, the space toilet has a sign behind it that says "Do not use in space dock." Yeah, I spotted that. Again, just someone at the prop or the, the yeah. set designer the department trying to enliven things, and Spock throws in this story about, oh, this is the new brig, they tested it on the, on the smartest person they could find and he couldn't escape. Yeah, yes. And the inference is that it was actually him. I thought, well, that's great. That adds nothing. Yeah, that's it's... Com- yeah, that means nothing to the scene. No, and I suppose you wonder whether... How much of it is William Shatner feeling that he has to throw a bone to... Um, Leonard Nimoy uh, you know do you think oh I need to here's a scene where I can add in a bit of flattery to not maybe not to, to Leonard Nimoy but, but to, to his Spock character. to his character yes you can suddenly have characters standing around and talking about how intelligent or how brilliant yeah I well, don't know well there's that scene earlier in the movie where they're looking at the new refurbished Enterprise and um, Kirk uh, quotes the line of poetry um, all that I ask is a torso no. but a star to steer her by and McCoy says, "Ah, Melville," and Spock immediately says, "Ah, John Macefield." Yes, yeah. Because it's sea fever, and that's kind of yes, it's Spock being the smartest one, and it's mm. but it also it's it's the dynamic. Yes, exactly. But um, I, I think you're right. It is. It's it's almost as if William Shatner's trying to keep just trying the, to keep the other yeah. alpha male of the group. Yeah. 
on side. Because it must also be very hard if you're suddenly in a situation where, okay, now it's your turn. Follow up the most successful Star Trek film that was directed by the other guy. Yeah. And, oh, and written by him as well. Yeah, you must you must start from a very defensive place. Particularly with someone who is well known as being... Uh, how can I put this in a non libelous way? Um, <laughs> Are we talking about Shatner or Shatner? Or? Someone who is has quite a high opinion of themselves. Uh, fiercely competitive, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you kind of... Obviously, it's way too late to, to fix any of this, but you do kind of wonder <laughs> if he had just been the director... Maybe if they hadn't said, maybe if he hadn't been the writer, or because I'm he, with the stuff that William Chatton was doing, he almost sounds at times like he was almost acting as a producer. I don't know if he's credited as producer or not. I don't believe so. No, but maybe if he'd just been treated as a hired writer, uh, sorry, a hired director even, right? And then you wouldn't, you wouldn't have the sort of the, the ego problem. You know, you wouldn't. Maybe you would solve some of the problems with the writing, and then at least he would be focusing on the directing. Potentially, but the um, clause in his contract was that he yeah, had fav- the same uh, level of input that yeah. Nimoy had. Nimoy was very involved in the storyline. Exactly. I think that was actually how they pitched um, the search for Spock. Was basically, you know, um, please, please, please come back. We'll let you direct. We'll let you. No, I think, I think, I think he, I think Leonard Nimoy pushed it. Is how about if I direct it and it's about my cat? You know, and it was this thing of going, Leonard Nimoy directs the search for Spock, and you think, yeah, that's. Well, if you're a movie executive, that's he was, irresistible. He, he was on the set. He wasn't just not necessarily on the on the side facing the camera. Yeah. Um, so I said, but that's it, and and suddenly you realise. I suppose it's just interesting the way that what does what starts out as a strength suddenly becomes a problem. And yes, the fact that Leonard Nimoy was allowed input into the stories and was allowed to direct. Now it's William Shatner's turn. Yeah. Um, oh, and here's all the other problems with the teamsters and the writers. And oh, you've got half as much money as you thought you had. And yeah. And, and, and ILM doesn't have the oh, yes, you've got I- to do the special effects because of all the other major movies coming out at the same time. Yeah, so we've got you this other guy. We've got this other guy based in Plainfield, New Jersey. On the other, so even not even on, on not even on the same coast. Oh no! Oh magic! And um, we're sending him the big Enterprise model that we've got, but it doesn't work properly anymore because we've been sending it to all these exhibitions and mm. the lights are broken. And we're also including this test shot he's done of the Enterprise near the moon, even though it doesn't. Think make sense in context because yeah. the Enterprise is supposed to be in the space dock set which is a reused shot from the previous yeah, movie yeah in fact there's quite a f- there's a yeah yeah there's quite a few reused effect shots I think aren't there, um, there are in fact few, generally yeah. speaking if it's a good effect shot it's a reused <laughs> well there's one bit I left out which is um, after the shuttle crash Spock gains the upper hand in a struggle and mm. manages to level a gun at Cybok and Kirk yells at him to pull the trigger and, and fire but Spock cannot, and it's because, as he later explains, it's because Cybok mm. is his, his half-brother rather than his full-blooded brother. But it's an emotional response, Yeah. and that then ties into the, uh, the visions in the um, observation deck sequence, because Spock's vision is of his own birth mm. and his father's disappointment oh, yes, at yeah. how human the infant Spock was mm. even though apparently he and uh, his father Sarek settled that at the end of the previous movie this whole um, yeah 
I mean, that's that's that, that's the problem. It, this this whole sequences that don't make sense with what's happened before. Or yeah, um, again, there are apparently three people apart from the apart from our heroes. There were apparently three people running the Enterprise. So naturally, there's no security team with because a shuttle's just crashed. Maybe get the. There must be some kind of emergency response team, or no, no. Those are. There's nobody on. This literally. This is a ghost ship, isn't it? There's, yeah. There's that. There's the guy on the bridge that Scotty shouts at when they're trying to fix the Enterprise. I think that might be. I think that. I think a lady there's, might. There's a yeoman played yeah. by uh, William Shatner's daughter. Okay. Yeah. I, I, actually, I saw her listed in the credits. Yes, I'd forgotten about that. Um, there's apparently a gag where he takes his jacket off when he first steps onto the bridge and hands it to her, and then she's wandering around in the rest of the scene trying to find a hook to hang it on, Damn which it. apparently William Shatner thought was hilarious. Uh, it, that one passed me by, to be honest. That's very, very background. <laughs> um, the other vision during that sequence is McCoy mm. and we know very little about the background of McCoy really yeah he's like a, supposed to be like an old fashioned country doctor you know like kind of crusty type that yeah. you see in a western and when he realises what he's going to be shown he begs not to have to go through it yeah and this whole sequence is the finest acting I've ever seen from DeForest Kelly mm. it's it's a very it's a very human moment in the middle of all this fantastical goings yeah. on. It's a very simple idea and very empathetic and beautifully played. Yeah. That his father was terminally ill and begged his son to end his life and end his pain. And he agrees. And through it all you have Cyborg kind of just drifting in and out in the background and whispering into McCoy's ears, you know, he won't he won't feel any pain. You're doing the right thing. But the reveal is that a short time after his father died, or he, he ended his father's life, a cure was found for his condition, mm. and he would have survived. And he broke his own Hippocratic oath to yeah. end someone's suffering and then discovered that it was for, it was for nothing. Yeah, it's a, it's a very, very nice little sequence. McCoy's a funny character because they keep... Even through the original series, they'd write episodes where they tried to throw a little bit of light on his character. And all they ever do is, he's a good doctor and he's very compassionate. And you never learn... Yeah, I mean, it, you it, never learn... It. Isn't, there, isn't there a mention sometime that he's got a daughter or something? Uh, or I think he's a No, that's... The, 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 the Way to Eden, the episode I mentioned earlier, started out as an episode called Joanna, where the idea was that Dr. McCoy's daughter would come onto the Enterprise. She had joined up with these travelling space hippies, and it would be a clash of generations. McCoy was estranged from his wife. He hadn't seen his daughter for years. It's worth looking up, I think, synopsis of the episode are floating around on the, inter- uh, the internet, and they are very baffling, because I think McCoy uses incredibly unpleasant language to describe. I think he describes his ex-wife as a witch at one point and stuff like that. It's really, really odd. Um, that's interesting but then what happened was the the people in the production team at the time because obviously this is series 3 so all the, <laughs> yeah the, I've heard about series 3 yeah all the all the people that made the series work in the way it had done in the past have moved on so the new bunch literally sees on the line about space hippies and go oh space hippies are in the news let's do an R 
let's do an episode about that. Mm. And that, and and Joanna disappears from the series. And that was the end of um, uh, a potentially interesting yeah. story. I like the idea of McCoy having being really so, horribly yeah. bitter about something. Yeah. And you know his, I mean his choice of words may have been, you know, I may have what, got what the word th- wrong. Things that are acceptable at the time, but that their relationship had gone so yeah. sour. Yeah. That, that's interesting. In some ways, for somebody that's always portrayed as being so compassionate, it would have been interesting to suddenly have an episode where we just hate, uh, straight up hate somebody. Yeah. That always makes for much more realistic characterization mm. when you have a character who has two completely opposing viewpoints. Mm. So he can be very compassionate, caring as a doctor, but he absolutely hates his wife's guts. Yes, yeah. His ex-wife's guts, that makes more yeah. sense. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. That, that feels like something that a real person would do. Yes, because yeah. It does, because it does conflict. It doesn't make sense, and people don't. People mm. aren't totally coherent emotional beings. But it's just kind of, you know, it's odd that as the series goes, you know, you had the whole storyline through Wrath of Khan where Captain Kirk is getting older and he's starting to question his own usefulness. Spock has the storyline about, as you say, uh, reconciling with his dad, which suddenly then seems to become an issue in the fifth film. And McCoy is just every now and again... They and shine McCoy a, is also there. And it, they shine a light on his characters. He's a doctor, he's compassionate. Yeah, it's just funny that they write him all these... Like that scene in Five, they write him a lovely scene. doesn't tell us anything about him that we couldn't already have kind of guessed. Uh, well, I wouldn't have guessed about no. euthanising his own father. Sorry, I meant, in, I meant in terms of his character. That oh, I ultimately, see. that he will put compassion above anything else. Um, but yes, yeah, but yeah, a, a terrific little sequence. Mm. Kirk, however... Kirk needs his pain. Kirk needs his pain. He's, you know, uh, he... And he offers a very, uh, you know, an entirely reasonable and agreeable point that, you know, these traumas and things are what shape us. Well, it's funny because I've just more or less come off the back of watching Westworld. And, of course, that's a whole running character theme in that, is people talk about the death of relatives. And they say, well, the, the pain is all they have. And these are, in some cases, I think in one of the cases, and this is probably why I revealed that I didn't watch Westworld as thoroughly as I should have done, one of the characters is an android, and they say, well, we can just, unpro- we can remove that pain from you. It's like, no, that's that pain is the only memory I have of this person I thought was my daughter. And so it's interesting to see them kind of, but there is, I think I read a review of Star Trek V somewhere where they said that the script occasionally comes across as being written as if it had been written by a 12-year-old boy, where it's like, there's this sexy space cat ladies and loads of horses and fist fights and Captain Kirk needs his pain because getting in touch with your emotions is for girls. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it kind of fits with Kirk. You know, this is the same guy that said he doesn't believe in the no-win scenario, and it, it does kind of fit with the sort of thing that Kirk would say. Yes, I I agree with both sides of the uh, mm. of the discussion. I mean, I've I've been through things in my life that had been extremely painful, but I've come out of the other end, and I've ultimately been stronger mm. for it. I don't want to go through it again. No, but, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> um, but at the same time, you know, acknowledging one's problems and one's weaknesses, and you know, a problem shared is a problem mm. halved. You know, it's again, it's two conflicting emotions being held in balance and that's you know what could be more human than that yeah or more Vulcan 
Well, absolutely. But meanwhile, as they've been talking about all this in the background, the purple light's been getting brighter and brighter through the window because they're almost at the centre of the galaxy. Yes. That's... It's, uh, the and, centre... and, and you know what? They've been driving all afternoon. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah no wonder they're all tired and cranky. <laughs> I mean, they literally left Earth a couple of days earlier yeah. and they're already at the centre of the galaxy. There's... I don't know what the crew of the Voyager are complaining about. They they keep talking about the galactic barrier. I don't know whether somebody has half remembered a line from a, an, a, a, a from a Star Trek episode where they go through a barrier at the edge of the galaxy. And I don't know whether William Shatner is sitting there and he's vaguely remembering something he said in the sixties. And I wonder if that's so it's just odd, you know. They, 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 you know the, 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 but yes, they get to the centre of the galaxy and there's a gal- uh, there's a barrier. And they say, oh, there's the great barrier. No one's no starships have ever come back. No signals have been received from a probe. And, and with through. And I just, and I just go straight through it. Yeah, there's no, no tension, is there? And it's not even. It's literally like a cloud. There's nothing there. It's a few space lights, I think. You know, you see, it, there's a, there's a, there's a few special effects. Am I misremembering it now? There's no reaction shots. There's nobody looking a bit nervous. There's just a few, there's the, you see the sort of blurry the, um, space clouds and things, and that's, it's just that a tangible That sounds right, yes. I mean, it's, it's the old injecting dye into water tank yeah. effect that you, that you see a lot. But it's more just that... There's no sense of grandeur. No. And there should be. This is, they, they're, they're going to see the planet where God mm. lives. This should be awe-inspiring. This should be the most extraordinary journey that could be imagined yeah but it isn't and and reaction shots aren't expense you know point no the, you just point the camera at them and get, say you're seeing something that's amazing yeah and yeah you've got a good you've got david warner there david warner can do i'm amazed they, in his sleep he's, he's, he's not even doing anything no no he's over there hugging the Romulan ambassador well yeah you know, d- she's I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna blame him for that. Yeah, He's no. not been given anything. William Shatner's daughter's on the other side of the set trying to find a hook. Yeah. <laughs> um, nobody's being given anything suddenly, and they've just come off the back of this really nice character scene, and now suddenly again, nobody's being given anything to do. Um, it's just weird. It, it it is just. It's one of those sequences that you could almost be imagine being given the footage in. I don't know, editing school or something. And it's like oh, make yeah. this exciting, and they. They don't, yeah. Create tension with yeah. this material. Oh, we missed out the bit where they use the rocket boots again. Oh, yes, yeah. To climb the lift shaft where the decks are numbered in um, out of sequence. Where they, they escape so that they can climb the lift shaft and then be captured again. I think that's it, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> so that was worth Again, again that, that only makes sense so that they can reuse the whole rocket boot thing. No. But, it's I, not a terribly exciting sequence. I'm I'm not one of these fancy fat cat accountants. Maybe cut that sequence to save a bit more money. <laughs> we could have more rock monsters at the end of the movie. Yeah, yeah, more than one. Do you know that footage is on YouTube of the rock monsters? It's also on the DVD. I is it? it oh, I do, see. I didn't see it on the DVD. It's so. Not very good. Well, no. Do it's... you have the special edition DVD? No. Well, I... there we are. No, I just I went off to YouTube and typed in Star Trek Five Rock Monster, and there it was in all its. Wasn't that a B fifty two song? It should have been. Well, one note I've written here is the barrier is an embodiment of fear. 
Oh yes, there is a line somewhere, isn't there? I think Cyborg has a line that he people says, says that it's the barrier is just an illusion. Yeah, or that people ha- kind of haven't got through it because they haven't wanted to get through they it. They didn't believe enough. Yeah. Um, well, again, that's kind of nonsense. It's all getting a little bit sort of new agey, and the, the magic was inside you all along. And you know. well, that's the moral of the movie. <laughs> well, yeah, so, oh God, God, it is, isn't it? Um, and the idea of life. Well, it's not so much life, but the idea. Life originating in, out in space. Mm. That's um, von Däniken. Ah, uh, yeah. Although it's that's alien life coming to Earth rather than God being yes, yeah, an alien entity. But um, the planet Shakari, named after Sean Connery. Sean Connery, yeah, it's all falling into place um, now. Does come into view, and then we get some reaction shots as all the various aliens yeah. uh. give their own name for all the, the planets. Ah, oh, they were said, ah, oh, Eden. The Roman artists are Vor to Vor. That's it, yes, yeah. And the Klingon also says something. Yeah, I can't remember what the Klingon. Plag! Yes, Spawn. Lurgy. But, I mean, that's. Yeah. Um, and then they. And they fly down they their fly shuttlecraft down. and they find that it looks exactly like Nimbus 3. Uh, yes, it does, doesn't it? A different bit of Nimbus 3. Yeah. Like the rocky, the rocky bit. Yeah. Um, it was filmed around the desert in California, because of course it was. Mm. And they did everything they could to make it look a bit more alien. So there's purple filters, mm. smoke, filming with the, well, the sun just rising behind a, a rock edifice, and a long sequence of everyone walking. Yes. Some to wherever it is that. Because walking is cheap <laughs> exactly yeah and it fills time nicely yeah. until they eventually get to where this signal or whatever is coming from there's nothing there and that would have been such a fantastic end to the story I mean it would have oh, been a yeah. huge anti-climax but to say you know the, the quest is not about an end point cyborg it's about it's about yeah. the search it's about the journey and it's not about the reward at the end of it and potentially, if you wanted to, you could have even gone for a kind of bittersweet ending along those lines, where Cyborg then refuses to leave because he's convinced the right place must be somewhere on this planet, and he just won't go back with them. Mm. Oh, that would have been quite sad because yeah. you do you, you do start to understand that he he genuinely mm. wants to do the right thing. He doesn't want to hurt people. No. He wants to help people. He's just taking extreme measures to do so. But then all these pillars suddenly start shooting out of the ground, and and then God appears. Yes. Or is it? It isn't. No, it isn't. <laughs> because as we established at the start of this podcast, the Enterprise, you, you, the Enter- this week the Enterprise goes and meets God. Nah, it's not going to. No, it's Father Christmas. Yeah. And doesn't he look jolly? Up to up to the point when he starts shooting laser beams from his eyes. Yes. Yeah. Um, when he. Uh, gets a bit shirty about Kirk questioning about why he's asking him to bring the Enterprise closer. Yes, but well that, again, if in terms of good lines, I actually really like the line about why does God need a spaceship? Because it's somebody finally asking the question that the audience is kind of thinking, and it, it feels like a, a it feels actually like a, a Captain Kirk moment. It's it's one of the few occasions when it doesn't feel like William Chapman was kind of either trying to puff 
Kirk up to show you how manly William Shatner is and look there's his stuntman climbing Um, or another moment where he's playing it with false modesty and he's actually trying not to give you know this genuinely just feels like a moment when he suddenly gets it exactly right and yeah of course Kirk would ask why does God need a spaceship and I like that he he puts his hand yes yes excuse me because I thought if this is really God I just best to be polite because you never know it's also one of the few points where it's actually Funny, um, yeah. It's and you've you've gone through minutes of leaden comedy, and suddenly the one bit that actually works and is funny, and is a character point, and there you go. It's at least at least some of the film works. Mm. But it turns out that uh, God is actually um, mean and angry, and has been buried there for however yeah. long it is. And... We never again. We never. It, fitting with the film's thing of not thinking anything through or really knowing we never it's just it's just bad it's just a bad thing isn't it well what I thought was quite fun is that the actor George Murdoch who plays the voice of God and his face is credited in inverted commas as God oh well you see well you know you don't want to lose some of the southern states no because what else are they going to call him I mean yeah uh, Shatner theorised that it was actually the devil yeah but again that doesn't... It just raises more questions. That just raises more questions. <laughs> what I was thinking was, well, if that's the devil, then that still implies the existence exactly, of God. Exactly, yeah, so yeah. You don't, you don't have to have God implied through Star Trek. It's not like a... You no. can tell the story without saying, oh, and that's God. Yeah. And, I mean, this is a series where, back in the 60s, the Enterprise was meeting God's every... The, the Enterprise meets Apollo at one point. Yeah. Um, the real one. Yes, yeah, absolutely no fun in that. That's definitely Apollo. Um, and one thing I really like during that sequence is uh, Kirk gets blasted with one of God's eye lasers. Yes, it's just funny you can say that aloud. <laughs> um, and Cybok says, "Oh, why would you do that to my friend?" Yeah. So Cybok is calling them friends now because again, he's just trying he's, to be good. Yeah. And he he says to Kirk so many times, it's so important to me that you understand what I want. He really wants to get Kirk on his side. Well, there's that quite a nice sequence, isn't there, after they've gone through the Great Barrier, where Cybok gives command of the Enterprise back to Kirk, because he knows that Kirk's not going to turn around and leave at that point. You want want to know what's down there as well as anyone else. Yeah. And Kirk says, well, if we're going to do it, then we're going to do it by the book. Mm. And I think that's... Maybe that's the most frustrating. There were little glimpses of a better film. I mean, it would have taken a lot of work and a lot of strategic spending of money um, and fewer horses. Fewer horses, yeah. Um, but you can you can just see something that could have worked, yeah. Putting off the release date to Thanksgiving so that ILM is available to the yeah. effects for you. Yeah, possibly. For, for a film... For a film like Star Trek, where you do associate it with very, very, very good effects, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Cyborg is disillusioned by uh, God blasting people. Yes, for some reason he feels it's setting a bad example. Yeah, and then God puts on Cyborg's face. Yeah, and then Cyborg oh. runs into his. Well, he says the or the the vision you had in your mind of of. Uh, where the Almighty dwells, that was that came from you, that came mm. from your own arrogance. And I thought, well, yeah, but 
it was a real place. Yes. <laughs> so, so how did that work then? Uh, did did evil god put it the, put it there, or did Cybok put it there, or again, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, no. But but the point is, oh, it's it's your arrogance. Yeah. They and, just, that's why, and that's why that's why I'm pretending to look like you now because yeah. you think you're God and you think you're all that you think you're all that they, they want that moment where the man that's looking for God sees God as his own reflection and it's, and the, it's not Kirk but no that's true it isn't is it well done William <laughs> yeah um, but they want that moment but again they haven't thought about why it's there or does it make any logical sense mm. or does it follow on from any of the other events that we've been watching it's just, it's just another thing that happens and then Cybox has to sacrifice himself because the story says so yes exactly so yeah. he leaps into the pillar of God um, and delays it for a few seconds yes. just long enough for the, um, the Enterprise to beam Kirk and Spock out and then, uh, sorry, Kirk, yeah, Spock say, and McCoy. Uh, well, the, the the first of all, they get they, they fire off a few photon torpedoes because it's been thirty five minutes and nobody's shot anything futuristic. <laughs> yes, they fire a photon torpedo at God, and it doesn't really do no, very much. It maddens him. But then later, uh, but Kirk goes running around while uh, while the face of God is chasing him around the landscape, and then the Klingon bird of prey appears and shoots at God and blows him up. Yes, apparently. Because they have much bigger guns. Well, it's the Klingons for you. That's why the that's why Cyborg was lucky. The Klingons didn't get to Nimbus three first. Well, exactly, and it turns out that um, the gunner was in fact Spock. And that's a really weird moment because it's shot like a bit. It's like, and here's your gunner, and it, wah, the chase, wah. and the chessman's around at Spock. It's like, who else was it going to be? Wasn't, shouldn't don't they have their own gunner who could equally shoot at a big face? He would think, well, there's the sequence at the start, isn't there, where the Klingon bird of prey is flying around the galaxy shooting, it shoots up the Voyager space probe, yeah. which is quite a nice little gag, but he's proud of his targeting ability in that. They've probably just set Klingon human relations back by 20 years by their refusal to allow the Klingon the honour of shooting God in the face. Mm. But um, it's because the uh, Klingon ambassador mm. pulled some strings and uh, got the pursuing Vulcans to play ball. Um, and we do have the fantastic line as with Kirk, who is so relieved, is about to embrace Spock, and Spock oh, yes, says, yes. "Captain, please, not in front of the Klingons." Yeah, which my dad thought was absolutely hilarious. Oh, okay, so, <laughs> it's possibly the funniest line in the movie. Wow. Okay. And then the movie ends with a cocktail party. Yes. Where all the characters are having drinks in the Enterprise. Because the movie has to have a final scene. But yes. Where William Shatner could deliver the moral of the story. Yeah. Maybe God is in all of us. Maybe God is in the human heart. Which is a Which, bit insensitive considering saying to Spock. Yeah. Maybe it's just me, but I don't really understand what he means by that. No. Um, and that, Partic- that. Particularly because the whole theme of the whole film, aside from the religious elements, has been. The, follow your the, dreams. <laughs> follow, follow your dreams to a desert planet in the middle of nowhere um, has been the relationship between the, mm. the core trio of Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, and how they're a family, and how they they mention when they're on shore leave. And you know, other you know other people when they go on shore leave, they don't spend it with their own crewmates who they spend all their time with anyway. They go and spend it with their families. Mm. And Kirk says, "People like us don't have families." Yeah. 
because they are a family. They're, they are a core unit. That's why they end up being locked up in jail together, even though it doesn't make narrative yes, sense. Yeah. It's because they are a, yeah. a core trio. They are the, the head, the heart, and the soul. Well, it t- and it ties back as well, or, or rather, thing, in a way, it's meant to tie back to Kirk's statement at the start of the film that he knows he's not going to die because he's not alone. But yeah, it's um, it's that human heart line. Was I came out of the cinema having seen Star Trek Five, and I just about managed to convince myself that I'd enjoyed it, <laughs> and that it was a good film. And then the next day, I happened to uh, mention to somebody that I'd seen it, and they and they did that was the point when they did the oh yeah that's the Human Heart film, and they did oh, that, they yeah. did Kirk and it's that and that was when the cognitive dissonance started to set in. Going, okay, I need to figure this out. I like Star Trek, but maybe I didn't like this, and. How is it possible for something to be simultaneously good and bad? And yes, that was the day I became a man. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was when you found out just because you love Star Trek doesn't mean that all Star Trek is great. No, exactly. I mean, I've discovered the same thing about Doctor Who. Well, yes, yeah. I think I think that's a learning curve that lots of people have been on over the last few years. <laughs> oh, you bitch! <laughs> Sorry, I've uh, I, I've kind of given away my feelings about the last few years of Doctor Who. Then. Um, but while they while they speak in the um, in the deck, Spock is very he's more with, more quiet and more withdrawn than he usually be. He says it's because he's lost a brother, mm. and Kirk says that he lost a brother once, but he was lucky enough to get him back. Yes. and that I think is the, that's the button. Yes, that's where you you put the uh, I think on the same. And you've just reminded me of exactly the same thing that I remember thought about when I watched the film. It's again, in terms of William Shatner half remembering stuff from the 60s, <laughs> there's an episode where Kirk's brother dies. Oh. Yeah. What's his brother called? Uh, I, you know, I can't remember. Um, but it's a really weird thrown away moment in an episode where a planet is taken over by these weird space aliens that look a bit like flying pizzas. Operation um, Annihilate. That's the one. The, 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 the one with, yeah. And the, the character, that's Kirk's brother. Oh. Um, but it's kind of just put in there to give some vague emotional stakes to the episode, but it doesn't really win. But nobody remembers. And I, and it was that thing, as Kirk's given the speech about, I lost a brother once, he's like, oh yeah, you did, didn't you? And then, of course, the film ended and I probably forgot about it. <laughs> and then you said it again, it's like, oh yeah, so there you go, I've recorded it in digital media for all eternity now. <laughs> well, as um, in response, McCoy says, well, but you said that men like us have no family. And Kirk says, the last line of the film, I was wrong. Oh. And then it just returns to the scene at the beginning where they're at the campfire and having previously tried to sing Row, Row, Row Your Boat oh, yes, around, yeah. and Kirk and Spock interrupts because he's questioning the plausibility and coherence of the lyrics. He's brought with him his Vulcan harp this time. Oh, that's right, and he starts yes. plucking out the tune on it. That was, that was a lovely little moment as the camera just sort of pans back hmm. and up into the sky. We didn't talk about the rock monster. No. Originally, they were going to, Kirk was going to be pursued around the god planet by a bunch of scary rock monsters that could breathe fire. But as the budget was eroded over time, it went from 20 rock monsters to 10 to 4 to 1. And then they looked at the costume and it looked... It looks okay. Yeah, it's fine. It's... But, the, I mean... It's just not very threatening. Two points occur. Let's paraphrase Kirk. Why does God need a rock monster? Yeah, it's never made clear exactly what that was supposed to mean. 
And the other thing is, I'm trying to think of a polite way of putting this. A talented director could have made that co- if the to- costume looks rubbish. I mean, I'm sure there's examples. Is it Doctor Who? There's definitely examples from somewhere where they, they've wheeled this thing onto the set and everyone's gone, oh my God. And the director goes, okay, let's have a hand and a shot of an eye. And you kind of... I read an interview somewhere with William Shatner where he talks about the fact that he, because he was pushed for time, he just grabbed whatever footage he... He just grabbed wide shots of this thing. And yeah, it looks awful because... Well, it's the, the visual effects for the whole sequence don't help with mm. Kirk being followed around by a giant face. Yes. Yeah. Because the um the visual effects company had no idea what they were doing. Well <laughs> that again that whole sequence is is just tension free, isn't it? And yeah. I don't know you, you you don't know what the stakes are. You don't no. understand what's going on. Yeah, what's he running and partly of course you don't know what he's running from because there's no money, but but also yes, as you say, why is he running, where's he running? It makes sense when he runs to the shuttle. But then he runs out of the shuttle and... Yeah. <laughs> well, in all fairness, I do think that it's ambitious in how it's asking difficult questions in a mainstream science fiction adventure. The problem with it... Well, there isn't one problem. There's a lot of problems. No, it's... I mean, it's, it's ego, it's lack of time, it's lack of money, it's the studio trying to cut corners. Hmm. But... For a character and concept-based story, we could have had so much worse. And that's not a, that's not a great, you know, ringing endorsement mm. that oh, it could have been worse. But but then you look at some of the films that you look at the the last few next generation films where they just it's just tired. Um, you it know, looks like they've given up. Insurrection and ne- is it Nemesis? Nemesis is the one with another cue. No, not another Q, another data. And, is that the one where and it's got Tom Hardy as the clone of Picard. And is that the one where they put in a dune buggy sequence because because Patrick Stewart likes dune buggies? Yeah. And you just think, well, oh. William Shatner likes horses. So. Well, yeah, that's true. But it's just... And then in Star Trek Into Darkness, they put in... Um, uh, don't even... They put in um, Zachary Quinto as Khan beating the crap out of Benedict Cumberbatch because he'd seen the second season of Sherlock. As a story that's about family and a quest for meaning and a search for higher things. I I would say that it's certainly true to the ethos of Star Trek. Yes, it doesn't it and doesn't do anything that Gene Roddenberry would have hated. I don't think. Ironically, he did not like this movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. But Gene Roddenberry, I, I, Gene Roddenberry kept trying to pitch films where the crew of the Enterprise go back in time and save Kennedy. I think he pitched that about twice. He repeatedly pitched that for at least the first two movies. Yeah. Until they politely told him to go away. <laughs> they asked him to leave the office, yeah. He was, for, after the first movie, which went wildly over budget, he was promoted to executive consultant mm. and given an office somewhere, and uh, presumably they bricked up the door. I think so, yeah. But, um, yeah, compared to some of the, the later Star Trek films, like Nemesis and like Into Darkness, this has. It's reaching to an intelligence. It's reaching towards higher things. And it's trying to tell a story that's based in characters and ideas. And that, at least, I think is worthy of praise, even if it doesn't actually work. (laughs) Thanks to Chris for making the time for this recording. 
Cinema Limbo is now on iTunes with more than 40 episodes available, so please download, review and subscribe. Podnos is also on Patreon, so please do make a one-off or regular contribution to help us with our running costs. We're also on Twitter at cinema underscore limbo and in person at j underscore j underscore phillips with two L's. But until next time, what does God need with the starship? You have been listening to Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, with editing and music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcasting Network, so please visit us at www.podnose.com. <laughs>